Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to Gen 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a student at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to Gem 23 series precedes and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by Alvin Tin. Alvin is a research fellow at Harvard Ash Center, focusing on analyzing the future of carbon markets, and he's also a founder of Block Carbon, a remote sensing and AI-driven platform aimed at facilitating and accelerating Asia's efforts to achieve net zero carbon emissions. Alvin, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me. Great, Alvin. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the energy sector in particular? I know you have some previous experience working at Shell. Why did you decide to pivot to the climate space and, and what excites you the most about the energy transition moving forward? Okay, so a little bit background about myself. So before coming to the US for for my MBA and MPA degrees, so I have been working for Shell for about 10 years. I think that's probably the last decade of like fossil fuel era. So basically my background in, in Shell was mainly around uh, energy trading and merge acquisitions. So my, my kind of expertise is mainly around uh, liquefied natural gas and also liquefied natural gas shipping assets. So basically my responsibility was to kind of trading and optimizing Shell's global energy shipping assets. So Shell maintains like more than 40 ships and we kind of trade and optimize them on daily basis. So that's kind of my daily job. And also regarding merger acquisition. So I was involved in Shell's several like largest acquisition deals. For example, like in 2013, I was part of the Shell's acquisition of Repsol Oil. And then in 2015, I was also part of the Shell's merger with BG Group. So that's kind of my kind of professional background. And in, in terms of why energy transition, I think during my time in Shell, especially during my time in those merge acquisition projects, I have experienced the, I think the first move of energy companies kind of transitions from like oil heavy to to gas, then from gas to electricity, and now from electricity to like more diversified kind of energy mix. So I think uh, because of my kind of exposure to this transition within an energy company, so I I kind of, how do you say, like I I got a feeling that the sector is definitely in a transition from the previous like oil major, oil heavy to uh, more diversified energy strategies. So that's kind of triggered my my own thoughts, like, okay, what, what would be the sector look like in 10 years time, in 20 years time? So I so that's also the main reason I take a career break and then uh, had my kind of masters in in the U.S. So I think that's kind of the beginning of my exploration of what's the energy transition look like. 
which kind of role I, I can play in this kind of new game. Got it. Thanks so much for sharing a bit more about, about your background. So what role do you think the oil and gas sector is in the clean energy transition? Does it have a future and what does that look like? Yeah, I think that's a very hot topic uh, in the industry. In my personal view, I think uh, at least in the next 10 years, oil and gas will still play a major role. I think it's, it, it, it's, it will not kind of completely disappear, like even, let's say, in a carbon zero kind of world. So I think in the next 10 years, um, a lot of the energy strategies will mainly focusing on like how to reduce emissions while I'm still using fossil fuel. So for example, uh, I remember like Shell did a very big deal with uh, another energy company to sell one vessel of liquefied natural gas, but it's carbon zero. So basically it's a combined deal with one vessel of LNG, but also with carbon zero solution to offset the emissions from this one vessel of LNG. I think that's a kind of good example of how uh, energy companies or how the society can still use fossil fuel, but in a more kind of carbon zero strategy um, to basically it's a combination of keeping using fossil fuel, but with some other like carbon emission solutions. So what prompted you to start Black Carbon? Can you give an overview of what Black Carbon is and what, what you're hoping to accomplish with Black Carbon and an overview of some of the projects that you've helped lead? So uh, when, when I look at the energy transition or, or the pathway to carbon zero, I feel like that carbon market is basically the most fundamental part of the like carbon zero economy. So uh, why is that? Because uh, carbon market is, uh, is in- instrumental to basically help the society or help the companies or, or, or the participants to allocate their resources uh, to be more kind of adapt to the carbon zero economy. So for example, like uh, if I know how many carbon emissions I can emit this year, then I, I, I roughly know like how many production I will have for this year. So I think like carbon scheme uh, will play a very fundamental role in the future like uh, economy. So that's why I feel like carbon market will become super important comparing to like carbon market uh, in 10 years ago. So so that's why like I'm, I'm now very much into this market. Uh, and for for block carbon, basically we we are a, a technology driven platform trying to help the developers of carbon credits to basically verify, monitor, or manage their projects more digitally, like using remote sensing and AI technologies. So um, what we try to accomplish basically is trying to help the industry to build up a, almost like a technology driven infrastructure. So the the pain points of carbon market now is so. The developments of carbon markets in different in, in different regions are not like synchronized. Like some some places are very advanced, some places are less advanced. And f- for example, like in Asia, there are like two largest emitters uh, of um, carbon uh, in the world, right? So uh, China and uh, India. However, Asia didn't play its role of like so called we we call like carbon credit manufacturer because because. Uh, there is a lack of tech, uh, infrastructure, like lack of data and like lack of technology uh, in the region. So that, that's like, I think block carbon can try to play a role there to provide the infrastructure to the players in Asia to basically to make the carbon credits uh, development like more transparent, more trustworthy and more kind of traceable. Can you talk a little bit about some of the problems that the 
carbon markets face right now. You know, there's all sorts of issues that we're seeing with various headlines talking about the lack of quality and credibility associated with carbon credits. I'm curious, what would you characterize as the biggest problems that you're still seeing in the carbon market space and what some of the perhaps root causes of those problems are? I think for carbon market, even though it's, uh, it's, uh, it has been existed for like several decades, like at least like two decades. However, I still define carbon market as a new thing. I mean, it's, it's an old thing, but it's also a new thing. A new thing in terms of, let's say, for the carbon zero economy, it's definitely a new thing. So for a new thing, the main problem is it's still at its very early stage that it lacks standardization. So for example, like let's say a nature-based carbon credit project, like a forest, different countries or different regions have different like methodologies to quantify how a deforestation, sorry, how a reforestation project can be quantified as a carbon credit. And also, like uh, I mentioned earlier, that the developments of carbon market in different regions are not synchronized. So um, in some places, it's the market scheme has already become like kind of mature. And in some places, it's still like in a very uh, rough kind of stage. So because of that, so the, the interactions between regions were very limited. Maybe let me summarize. So that's the first thing I think lack of standardization is definitely one of the biggest problems. And secondly, the, the lack of uh, kind of transparency is also another issue. I think you probably heard of criticize of carbon credits that whether this project really reduce emissions or really kind of removes carbon from the atmosphere. That That's a big problem because w- when people try to demonstrate they have developed a carbon project, they tend to uh, just show that I have already got the certification from this organization, then I I have this project, I I have this carbon credit. However, they didn't really demonstrate like, what did I do uh, differently? What, What kind of change I bring to the atmosphere because of my project? So that's why I mentioned earlier that the industry lacks of data and the technology to do that, to make the whole process like more transparent to the audience or, or to the whole kind of society. That, that's also like what Block Carbon is trying to do, to help the developers to, from day one, to build up this kind of transparency through technology. So for example, like if there is a, a reforestation project in, let's say, in Bangladesh, what we can do is we can use the satellite imagery to basically show the audience that here is a project, here is the changes because of the project, here is the comparison of the project. I mean, here is the comparison of what it is now versus what it was like two years ago. And we, we, we will also use satellite imagery to quantify like how much carbon storage they, they can produce in the next few years. And also we will, the sudden the imagery also can help the, let's say the buyers or, or the audience to, to monitor the projects in a um, regular basis. So you can see it from your eyes uh, rather than you can, you, you just see a certificate or carbon credit. Uh, so um, back to the problem. So I think a lack of transparency definitely is another big, biggest problems. And, and the, the third one I think is the, um, the kind of, as I mentioned earlier, the interactions between, uh, among different regions. So in my view, carbon market can only work when everybody in the world is, is involved. 
it cannot be just done like in the US or cannot be just done in China or, or in EU. Uh, it must be a global market. So, so, so I think like in the next few years, different regions will start to interact with each other. But at the moment, I think different regions still have their own agenda, still have their own kind of priorities. So how this market can interact with each other, I think that's a still open question. But I think if we, if we say like in 2050, we hope our world will become a carbon zero world, then I think the carbon markets need to be kind of integrated with each other. What do you view as the role of technology in addressing these these issues? Is this, a, is this the problem that is fundamentally driven by technological barriers, whether that's having the mechanisms to be able to a- accurately and adequately measure the emissions reduction and the additionality associated with projects? Or is this, are, are there other, you know, other structural barriers, whether it's economic or social barriers that are important to consider as well? Yeah, I think some of the problems can be solved by technology and some of the problems must be solved by like policymakers or all the kind of international negotiations among uh, among policymakers in different regions. I mean for the for the lack of transparency, for the lack of like trust, the additionalities, those uh, leakage, those those problems I think can be solved by technologies. I think from my observation, I think now the market has already developed into uh has already developed two type of technologies to help the transparency issue. The first one is basically we call like carbon accounting. So there are so many carbon accounting startups in in the US, for example. So basically their role is to help the organizations to basically accurately track how much emissions they have uh, in their organization, directly and indirectly. So for example, let's say uh, there is a, a power grid. They are producing energies from fossil fuel uh, fossil fuel energies or from and also from some renewable energies so so accurately quantifying the carbon emissions for this power grid will become very important because we need to know like how much emissions they have they they are generating that that's almost like the first step we we need to like understand our emissions more accurately so uh and, and i think this can be can be solved by technologies so, uh, like I said, there are so many startups are doing this and for different uh, industries like power grid, they have their own carbon accounting technologies for, let's say, for like oil companies, they have different uh, technology to to uh, capture that. So I think that's the first direction of um, uh, quantifying carbon emissions. The second one is basically what we are doing uh, is how to quantify the uh your like carbon storage uh, activities. So what we are focusing is like nature-based carbon solutions, like planting trees, like uh, some agriculture solutions or, or soil carbon uh, or like uh, blue carbon, like ocean, ocean-based ocean uh, solutions. So all these uh, nature-based solutions, as I said, I think it they will become very important in the next 10 years at least when fossil fuel is still playing a role that then uh, there must be a kind of offset from some kind of problems, uh, some kind of projects. But so far, the carbon storage, like CCUS technologies are still very expensive. So I think the nature-based solutions will play a very important role, in, at least in the next decade. So then for for these nature-based carbon projects, I think the like we said, the pain points can definitely be solved by technologies because like satellite imagery or other like remote sensing technologies basically can help the um, the companies to 
uh, almost like digitalizing the whole process. So when, when everything is digitalized, then uh, the transparency issue can be solved. And also when transparency issue is solved, then the trust will be built uh, among like buyers and, and developers and traders. So uh, then uh, the uh, interactions among different regions can also be uh, become like more uh, smooth or, or like become more kind of become easier to be implemented. So going back a little bit real, really quickly to some of the challenges of carbon markets that we've already discussed, do you think the path forward to addressing them, will that primarily be driven by suppliers or the purchasers of the offsets in terms of who's, who is going to have to sort of take the lead moving forward? Um, and of course, it's both, but I'm curious if you have a, a view as towards which one may be more important. Yeah, I think in, uh, in, in the markets at the moment, the buyers are the main drivers to bring these technology solutions. I mean, especially in the U.S. market, I think uh, the, the, the main buyers are like uh, financial institutions, the uh, tech firms, and also some uh, like uh, F500 companies. I think uh, these actors are basically are, uh, pushing the market to take more uh, technology solutions because they are not just having some like ESG reporting pressure from, from their shareholders. They are also trying to be more actively prove to the public that um, what they are spending money on carbon credits really make a difference. So I think so far, like the main drivers are from the buyer side, but I think uh, in my view, uh, I hope the, the kind of driver should come from at least three parts, like uh, not just from buyers, but also from like developers uh, or sellers and also from policymakers. I think policymakers can play a big role here because if there is no kind of regulation based mechanism, then buyers will can still push the technology technology changes. But if there is no regulation, then the other kind of players can still like use the outdated methodologies, right? And because if you are using outdated methodologies, then your cost will be, be lower than others. Then what will happen is the solutions with lower cost will probably dominating the, the market, then basically makes the buyers uh, feel, okay, there is no high quality credits in the market. And then for the, they will have less kind of a motivation to invest in this area. So that's why I feel like policymakers should still be involved in this area. And, and then for developers, I think what they or what the market need to do is basically to demonstrate to the developers that if you basically implement some new technologies, it will not just make your carbon credits more transparent or have a higher quality, but also you can reduce your cost overall. So the drivers should come from like three, three parties, like buyers, developers, and also the policymakers. So shifting a little bit, what in your view are the meaningful distinctions between the compliance credit markets versus the voluntary ones? Um, and, and for the listeners who may not be familiar with those concepts, if you can just quickly provide an overview as well of the distinction. And as regulatory regimes increasingly require carbon emissions reductions, do you see these markets converging over time? 
So first, for the definition of compliance market and voluntary market. So compliance market, I mean, in simple term, basically, it's a market that first managed by the regulator. Secondly, the compliance market is mainly to to regulate like how much emissions you can a company can have or a factory can have in a certain year. So, for example, let's say in in California, a power generating company can only have let's say 1,000 tons of carbon emissions. And if you generate more than that, then you need to purchase quota from other participants. If you generate less, then you can sell your additional quota. So that's kind of the how, how it works for compliance market. So it's mainly uh, regulator driven and also it's mainly emission trading system. And then for voluntary market, voluntary market I think is a market to buy and sell projects which can directly reduce emissions from the atmosphere. So for example, like some nature-based projects like planting trees. So voluntary market is mainly driven by buyers. As we discussed earlier, like uh, the financial institution or, or tech firms, they, they have requirement to basically make their company carbon zero in a certain year. Then they have a, like a desire to purchase such kind of, we call carbon credits so that they can offset their emissions. So voluntary market is mainly driven by buyers' own desire to be carbon zero rather than by regulation. So I think the distinction between these two markets is very obvious. And in my view, in the future, these two markets must be interacted with each other in a certain form. Otherwise, again, the, the carbon market would not work. Because in the end, everything should be identical. Like the cost of your emission and the cost of uh, reduced emission must be in the same level. Otherwise, there, there will be a problem to like really price CO2, right? So, uh, so far, I think there are some experiments in, in some regions. For example, I think in California, there basically for participants in compliance market, they can purchase certain amount of voluntary carbon credits to offset their uh, compliance requirement. But this amount currently is very low. I think it's like less than 10%. And also like in EU or in China, those other two big markets, I think there are also some similar schemes to have a certain percentage to basically you can exchange uh, carbon credits with carbon offsets uh, or carbon quota, emission quota. However, at the moment, like I said, it's very, the percentage is still very small. And in the next few decades, I, I can see this percentage definitely will become larger. Every, everything must be, like, like I said, like everything should be identical or at least in the same level. Like no matter it's carbon emission quota or carbon credit or carbon tax, I, I think the, the price should be in the same level. Otherwise, like there, 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 uh, there, there will be some issues. Excellent. And how would you design an international governance regime where there's proper measurement, reporting and verification of the validity, the quality of the additionality of carbon offset projects? And how do you create international frameworks of collaboration around many of these issues, given that most of the efforts so far have been focused at national or subnational levels? I think the most important part for an international regime is basically international recognized standardization. Uh, all we call uh, messages. Like I said, so far, different regions still maintain their own kind of uh, standard and all methodologies. And there is very limited uh, interactions uh, among those standards. So 
I, I think the condition of uh, international regime definitely is uh, no matter it's organization or or standard, which is recognized by everybody in the every region. I think uh, in the future there probably will have a WTO type of organization among different countries. Basically, this organization will try to almost like make international laws for for carbon. That's kind of my hypothesis. But but at least there must be some kind of scheme or organization existed to basically promote the standardization of different of different messages. So so that's kind of one thing. The second thing is like how how technologies be part of the game. As I said, we, what we are trying to do is trying to kind of use remote sensing and, and AI to help the transparency of, of carbon credit developments. But that's only a small part. For international regime, uh, if they really need to work then there also must be a consensus regarding like which type of technologies are recognized by all the regions or at least the the uh, some largest players like like EU, China and the US. So let's say if different regions uh, basically apply different technologies, then it will not also not work for a kind of a real international market. So yeah, to, to answer your questions in, in short, I think there must be some kind of consensus or, or organization to basically standardize all the different messages or all the different technologies so that like every, everybody is having almost like one, one standard. So where do we go from here? What is the role of carbon markets moving forward? Even though carbon market has a lot of problems, but I I still want to emphasize like the importance of carbon market. Like I said, a carbon market will be the fundamental part of the future carbon zero economy. So um, I think a lot of efforts and time should be like spent to make carbon market like more robust. You can find more information about Alvin and Block Carbon at blockcarbon.earth. Thanks again to Alvin for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Developments, research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.